0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: When, Ru- when, when Putin talks about Russians, he means a bloodline. He means an ethnicity. This is something impermeable. It's not, it's not a community you can leave or become a part of. Either you're born that way or you're not. With us, when he says that the Ukrainians are a part of, the, the, the they're really basically the same, he's mm-hmm. tapping into this czarist, really 19th, early 20th century notion of belonging that was espoused by the czar.
2: They didn't have a chance, it seems. It looks like that, anyway. Gray, chainmail-armored men with helmets in the foreground, confused and lost, barely able to raise their swords. Their general, fallen, lying in the remains of a wrecked wagon. Its wheels are strewn with tattered flags and busted barrels across a dirt road. It's a pitiful scene. A knight tends to him, and as he does, looks up. His eyes meet the point of a spear. In the center, the colors, these yellow horses, these red-shirted and blue-panted equine swordsmen slicing their blades. To the left, three men in red, swords in the air. The paintbrush has captured the movement in which they will deliver the simultaneous kills. To the right, a charging spearman with a long beard fells a man, who has no time to unsheathe his sword. His pain is evident. He clutches his heart. His attacker's horse is still charging, coming for us as we stare at the painting, it almost seems. If this wasn't depicting carnage, it would be a picture of beauty. Azure, magenta, brick red and turquoise green. In the distance, smoke, fire, horses. You can make out a hundred more scenes like the one that we are witnessing. A river in the distance. A little castle. The castle is Zabarov. It's what these men are fighting for, though they are fighting for so much more. The multicolor horsemen are Cossacks. In Turkic language, it refers to free men. And that's what they're fighting for, their freedom. The symbolism is can't miss. The Cossack history of free men on horseback who mounted the stirrups to bring themselves out of serfdom remains embedded today in the conception of Ukrainian history. References to Cossacks are in the National Anthem. The National Anthem we are now hearing so much is proud. Ukraine is not dead yet. This painting is, and other paintings like it, is all we have of the battle of in which the Cossacks surprised and defeated a large army of Poland in 1649. Led by Bogdan Khmelnytsky, leader or hetman of the hetemate, a rebel state which controlled Ukraine for 100 years more than that. From the time of this battle until our own American Revolution, they controlled their own destiny. Cossacks, in many cases, are peasants, farmers with nothing, turned into horsemen and fighters. But this whole story of the Battle Zaborov starts when this Cossack gets into a dispute with a Polish starosta. kamelnitsky's farm was raided. He was harassed. It's possible that his wife was abused by the Polish Starosta, the uh, local official. His son was beaten up on his farm. He protests, writes an official letter to the government. No one listens. So he meets with other Cossacks, and he raids the local garrison. When other units try to take it back, he's able to fend it off. This revolt takes off from there. kamelnitsky turns out to be quite a leader of people and is able to assemble a large army. He found out that a large Polish army was coming to reinforce the garrisons that had controlled his area, his country, which we now would call Ukraine, the city of Kiev. and other cities we're hearing in the news were in this Hetman's area. He found out early about the reinforcements arriving and designed to attack the reinforcements directly, splitting the Polish army in two. He was allied, sort of, with... Tatars of Muslims from the south, from the Crimean area, and surprised the Polish army by hiding the bulk of his army behind a hill and attacking as they crossed a river. The Polish army was about to be decimated, and only because the allies, the Tatars of these Cossacks, insisted on signing a peace deal did they accept entreaties from the Polish army from the king of Poland to do a treaty and forces Poland to agree to grant independence to the Hemenate. Kamilnitsky's name remains in a city in Ukraine, and his picture adorns Ukrainian banknotes. There are statues of him as well. It wouldn't be so easy even after the battle if he would have battles with his own Muslim Tatars. They didn't turn out to be such reliable allies. They were a force multiplier in the battle, certainly, kept betraying the Cossacks. All of these events, yes, they were long ago. And it's not unremoved from what's going on today with Russia's horrific invasion.
1: Ukraine tends to be in the middle of things, and it's gone back and forth. So you you go back to like Kiev and Rus', you know, you go back to, you know, over a thousand years ago. We talked with Dr. Ben Sawyer of Middle Tennessee State
2: University. He's also the host, along with Bob Crawford, of the Road to Now podcast. And by the way, if you're not listening to that, you should. He's an expert in Russian studies, Ukrainian studies, and he's got an article in the Washington Post, Look Out for That.
1: Where, you know, you have this this narrative again that begins there that, that is claimed to unite the Russians, the Belarusians, and the and the Ukrainians. Then you have the, the Mongol invasion in the 1240s. It's It's a long story here. The issue of nationalism really complicated there because when you get this creation of this ethnic nationality, uh, and nationalism as a story as a as a way of uh, defining a community it comes in the 19th century it's all about a defining a clear language it's all about defining a clear uh narrative that is distinct uh you have you know national tragedy things like this so when you when you look at like what what this looks like when it comes to Ukraine um first of all you've got a lot of peasants there and you go to them with some kind of a romantic 19th century story they're you know okay but but farmers don't leave very far from where they're from and you know peasants certainly don't most of the non-Ukrainians they talk to are gonna be Russians or Poles. A lot of their relationships, if you're a peasant with those folks, is that they extract wealth from you, right? So they own your land. Uh so there's this is a tense relationship there. And so so this idea of national nationalism doesn't really stick there because you have so many communities that are so overlapping. And because language and literature and all this creation is what's needed to create a, a, a notion of of nationalism uh illiterate people it's hard to bring them in on that but ukraine itself is divided i mean you have portions of it that were part of the Mm austro-hungarian empire right that then fall you know western ukraine where lviv is now um you have it going back and forth poland claims it for a minute then it comes back into ukraine you've got portions in the eastern part of the country that are that are ethnically russian so you just have this mix there and what Putin is trying to say now is he's like, well, no, it doesn't matter. Everyone there is Slavic. If you're Ukrainian, you're part of the Russian story. Ukrainians have been trying to create their own story. And again, it didn't stick as hard there as in a lot of other places.
2: Everything
1: about Ukraine and
2: its history right now is contested. You'll see battles on Quora, not so much now, but leading up to the in- invasion from people saying, you know, Russians saying to Ukrainians, name one thing that the Ukrainians did without Russia and Ukrainians saying back that we were the, the force behind the Soviet Union and all of these famous people come from there. Even the name Ukraine is contested, as Ben talks about.
1: Ukraine in, in Ukrainian, Ukraina in Russian. Um, the, the origins of the word are like somewhat murky, but, but the generally understood uh, origin of the name Ukraine uh, goes to uh, the root word in Russian, Krai, means uh edge of something ukraina mm. the russian word like it's why Rus- why ukrainians don't like uh the in front of ukraine because ukraine is one thing the ukraine right so so in russian there's two ways you can put it uh v which means in ukraine um, but then another way you'll hear people say is na ukraine which means on the ukraine and that root word cry being on the edge if you, say, if you say the Ukraine, it, it evokes that edge notion. And as you know this, if you're going to have a periphery, you have to have a center. And in that, in that center, it's Russia. So it's, like, it's almost like they're not a legitimate country. They're just the edge of this Russian empire, the Slavic world.
2: These events that we described and the Cossack Revolution so long ago that while Cossacks and Rutharian peasants are fighting for their freedom on the steppe. The Dutch still held New Amsterdam at this time, in modern-day New York City. Philadelphia didn't exist. The Dutch were battling with Swedes over who would start a colony in that area. Rhode Island was just now separating church and state in its laws. Maryland was developing tolerance of other religions officially, while Massachusetts was cracking down on heresy. And Charles Stewart, the King of England, lost his head. Virginia colony in America remained loyal to the Stuarts and not to Oliver Cromwell until a ship arrived in Virginia and forced them. This is all going on as the Hemanite is established in the Ukraine area, and it would have its troubles with its allies, and another second Polish division would take back more lands. Without allies, Kamilnitsky would be forced to make a decision one that is directly talked about in the events of today. These events are of supreme importance to a long-bearded bookish fellow named Michalow Rushevsky in the 1880s. His weapon is not a horse, nor a sword, nor a spear, but a pen. And he compiles his 10-volume history of the
1: Ukraine in the 1880s. Histories and people are products of their times, and of certainly at the era of nationalism, these authors are going to be trying to, to use history to differentiate Ukraine from other sides, from, from other ones, because they want to create this distinct identity. And this is why history is so important for creation, the creation of identities, the creation of belonging, communities. It tells a story. Here's the story. Here are the highlights. Here's how we're here.
2: He wanted to tell the story of his country, not from the point of view of all the various people who owned it or conquered it, Poles, Austrians. Germans, Russians, but the people who lived there, the Kievan Rus, who were reduced and conquered by the Mongols, and of course, the Cossacks we discussed. Ukrainians, he said, were always fighting for Ukraine, for a nation, not for religion and not for class, as other historians asserted. They were fighting for free land. In the 1890s, Ravszewski becomes a politician, too, arguing from independence. Here's him in 1918, writing in the New York Times the Cossacks did not hesitate to proclaim their immunity from all jurisdiction to all foreign sovereignty, all taxes, all personal service of those who had submitted to the power and jurisdiction of the Zaporaj or the Cossack army. In other words, Cossacks offered freedom from the heavy burdens of serfdom. It is what the historian isolates as a Ukrainian moment. But Roshevsky is not popular in Russia. His interpretation is not. He wasn't popular then, though he's accepted and worshipped in Ukraine. His picture appears on Ukrainian money, just like the Hetman, Kavelnitsky does. There are statues of him in Kiev. He's prosecuted by the Tsar of Russia, who arrests him and sends him to Siberia. His crime? How he interpreted the events of the 1650s. But back to our Hetman, the Cossack, Kavelnitsky. His free nation could not, in his estimation, last long on its own. There were simply too many countries surrounding it. And the Crimean Tartish, how which we had mentioned, that helped battle the Poles, were just not reliable. He must make a choice. His nation is mostly Orthodox in terms of religion. He's surrounded by Turks, Poles, Russians, Austrians, Moldavians. He decides to side with what's then called Muscovy in Moscow, but... We would know that nation, and it's soon to be Russia. There's a treaty signed in 1654. This obscure treaty still matters very much in 2022. It's referenced by a would be historian of Vladimir Putin in a Russian media source on a website. It's concrete evidence for Russians from Catherine the Great to Vladimir Putin that the Cossacks, the Ukrainians, signed away their sovereignty to Russia in exchange for protection. That's not the way Ravshesky sees it. Writing in 1918, he's been released after the October 1917 revolution, and Ukrainians are part of that revolution. He refers to the treaty. These articles were drawn up in haste. Without going deeply into the problem, many questions were left undecided. He says the Porpolars, or the discussions prior to the negotiations, which still exist, the treaty, there's no copy of it that exists, but the Porpolars do exist, say that Kemal was agreeing to whatever concessions to provide Muscovy as an ally to go to war with Poland. Some see it as an establishment of a union, he says, some a theoretical one. So the argument is either it's kind of a treaty to to have a common purpose in going to war, or it's a treaty giving away your sovereignty. By the 1780s, when Catherine the Great is in charge of Russia, she'll completely bring Ukraine into Russia. The various czars will continue that. And then you get into, there's some, here's Mikhail Zygar's The Empire Must Die. We had Mikhail Zygar on in 2017, and I finally got around to finishing his uh, large book on the Russian Revolution. A serious problem is brewing between Kiev and Petrograd, and this is in July 1917, Russia has thrown off the Tsar, the Tsar has abdicated, and now a provisional government, ostensibly of Democrats, of um, a mixture of business leaders, some right-wing former military people, the Bolsheviks, and socialists are forming have formed a provisional government. And until October 17, when the Bolsheviks take over, it will it will run Russia, more or less. A serious problem is brewing between Kiev and Petrograd. For several months, the Central Rada has been developing plans for Ukrainian autonomy. On the 16th of May, a Ukrainian delegation headed by Volodymyr Vinichenko had traveled to Petrograd, but it was not received by any ministers. The Ukrainian question was postponed until the convocation of the Constituent Assembly. Kyiv opts for more decisive action. In early June, at the height of mobilization, and contrary to a ban imposed by the provisional government, the first all-Ukrainian military congress is held in Kyiv, at which the creation of a separate Ukrainian army is put forward as a key demand. At the same time, the Central Rada publishes the first universal, the main policy document and manifesto of the new Ukraine. It is a constitution in everything but name.
1: The Bolsheviks come in with a whole new story about the way the world works, and at a time when... Uh, World War One has brought the, the the Russian Empire to its knees, and so so, so much to the point that you have uh, incredible losses. You have people going off to die. You have shortages of food. Um, people are so desperate that they go out and risk their lives to overthrow the czar who has ultimate power. I mean, it's it's kind of an insane point. The Bolsheviks uh, get in power and they make sure their people are the ones at the top.
2: And there you have it.
1: Confusing
2: um, history. That goes on and on, and it's certainly something that's able to be exploited by the various players. I talked with Ben Sawyer, and we're going to have an extensive talk about all of these things. And I'm here with Dr. Ben Sawyer. He is from Middle Tennessee State University. Also, most importantly, he is on the Road to Now podcast with Bob Crawford. Now, you already listened to that because I've told you to listen to that. And if I tell you to listen to a podcast, you need to do it. I'm not a dictator, but in this instance, I am. I
1: thank you. I appreciate. It. Happy to be happy to be on the uh, the, the beneficial end of your uh, benevolent dictatorship, Bruce.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I wanted to have you on, Ben, because I'm not as much an expert on these things. Although I'm at work, as we discussed, with my Soviet Union podcast coming later in the year. But uh, yeah, the events now, you know, have come at a at a and they're they're moving at a fast pace. I am not an expert, Ben. Is the expert you have studied right? You've been to you've been to Ukraine. You've been to Russia.
1: Yeah, I, I'm I'm primarily in Russia. I um, spent about mo- mo- the better part of, of two years of my life there, and I went there various times. Aside from that, but yeah, basically from the from the end of summer of 2010 to the end of summer t- 2012, my life was centered and lived mostly in in Russia, um, but did visit uh, Ukraine a couple of times. Went to Odessa. Uh, spent a day in Kiev but, but spent you know several days in Odessa, uh, which is the southern part right now on the on the Black Sea which a lot of you guys are hearing about now. it's an old city. but my major field is in Soviet history. For I'm sure. someone whose research focuses primarily on the economics of things. I'm interested in exchanges, uh, basically like the history of economic systems and the creation of a communist and capitalist world and how they interact. But you can't study the Soviet Union without understanding nationalities, policy, and ethnicity. Not you can't, And you can't live there either without understanding these things because they very much matter in shaping the, the history of Russia, the Soviet Union, and Ukraine, uh, all the former Soviet republics, and, um, and people's everyday lives. They matter a lot.
2: I'm not sure that people know how much the current war that's going on has to do with history you, for instance uh last year Vladimir putin played historian writing an article on with his interpretation of the history and whispered in george w bush's ear that there is no ukraine it's not a yeah. real country you know he comes from the soviet union and and i think there's a lot of this battle that's going on is 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 over nationality it is state.
1: can i just can i just start off by saying i would be incredibly hesitant to get my history from politicians yeah, <laughs> I mean, this is—I mean, this is the thing. I mean, it's—it's it's all about a story, right? And
2: even the ones that you like, it's like ah, you didn't totally
1: get that right. <laughs> no, I mean, because when you let a politician tell you a story, it it generally concludes with the notion that you should support them. And politicians are storytellers.
2: But it's funny because at the end of it, not to say anything with Putin say right now is funny, but it is interesting because at the end of the article, he has this whole historical, you know, methodology discussion where it's like, I get my, my uh, statements here from open sourced and not secret meetings and secret facts.
1: The interesting thing is like, hey, you know what? Uh, it's like, I'm not an alcoholic. <laughs> <African> unlike <laughs> like some people and you're like, what are you saying? Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say that, that Putin certainly is better at, at projecting the idea of objectivity than most politicians are. Uh, He's not, he's not actually being objective, but like, yeah, he does a better job of sounding like a scholar than most, you know, most American politicians are like, freedom, this country, the founding fathers, the constitution, Mm -hmm. blah. And they just like, like, it's just kind of amorphous, like some symbology. Um, Yeah. I mean, he does, he does tap into, I mean, he gets at some things that, that are real in the past and he, he he does go through in his story, but, but really it's, it's a narrative that, that, that he is, that he is trying to project and tell. And this is where it's. I think it's important. If you want to understand any of this, you've got to understand that communities are based around stories, and legitimacy within those communities is based upon it's like as it is now. I mean, the reason politicians use history all the time is because it's a it's a force of legitimizing one's actions. If you need to have a population behind you, you need to tell a story that's convincing to them. Uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll say here right now. I don't know that Putin's new story that he's broken out recently is is that convincing to a lot of people. But. um yeah, you go back to it and, and what he's getting at here and, and where he like he, he overlaps with some debates historians are actually having is this question of the formation of nationality and its origins. It's messy. It's messy. And so, first of all, for most Americans, I think one of the biggest problems they have understanding this is that um, like we see nationalism very differently. We have a civic nationalism. For us, our belonging in the United States. Now, this doesn't always... The pan out like this, but I think his origins, mm. I mean, our founding documents are are not they're not ethnic documents. They're documents about principles. They're they're Enlightenment documents, which was I think fascinatingly enough a rejection of the bloodline notion of belonging as was practiced under empire. I mean, you have a monarch, and the monarch's entire legitimacy is based on upon a blood claim that their you know that their father birthed them and that their blood is is therefore the revelation of God's will. We reject that, and we reject that at a pretty interesting time, because it's it's at a moment where the enlightenment leads to a rejection, the reasoning leads to a rejection of that bloodline, but before what happens in the 19th century, which is the creation of a new story that is nationalist and, and is ethnic in this ethnic way, so ethnicity ends up becoming really important to folks uh, in, in Eastern Europe, and that's a gap. When, Ru- when, when Putin talks about Russians, he means a bloodline. He means an ethnicity. This is something impermeable. It's not, it's not a community you can leave or become a part of. Either you're born that way or you're not. With us, when he says that the Ukrainians are a part of the, the – the, they're really basically the same, he's mm-hmm. tapping into this czarist, really 19th, early 20th century notion of belonging that was espoused by the czar, which was that Slavic people are all one community, and within that, you have the tight connection between the Russians. So, you have uh, Russia, Belorussia, So, Russia, Belorussia, and mm-hmm. Malorussia, which means little Russia. And that's what they called Ukraine. And so, when he's making, when he's basing these claims on it, what he's saying is, this is an immutable, primordial belonging. You mm-hmm. are, and, and this is the problem. Uh, therefore, in his story, Ukrainians don't have the right to leave.
2: If you turn it around, and I think um, the Ukrainians right now are trying to do that, it's like, okay, let's say we're one country. Guess whose money and whose economy they're going to be using? There'd be a yellow and blue flag over Moscow right now. We have a better economy. We're stronger. You could argue that Ukraine was always a part of the Soviet Union, was always a um, functioning member of the Soviet Union. A lot of the energy, uh, certainly the wheat production.
1: the collision that you're seeing here is Russia is, is Putin asserting and and this is the big break. Putin had always mm-hmm. used these ethnic tensions to 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 get to, to edge in. He has a long history of exploiting this whether in Chechnya, whether in Georgia, uh, with the Abkhazians and the, the South Ossetians there. This is why it's surprising to me because he had always played a story that was about nationality, but it looked like a modern notion of nationality. Right? there are Russians, there are, you know, Belarusians, there are Ukrainians. And of course, that relationship's a, a bit, a bit, you know, the history there makes them have more, more in common. But what we saw when he went for Kiev was like a complete, a complete reversion to like a czarist era notion of like what the national belonging is. Russian and Ukrainian; these are like modern nationalities. This is why it's such a, such a incredibly shocking thing to see that going for Kiev, which nobody expected. Uh, well, not nobody. I think Americans did, but.
2: I just come off uh, reading "The Empire Must Die." Zygar, he's the head of Rain TV. and I had him on the show. And I just finished reading his giant book, and he kind of makes this point though that like Putin and the current Russia is more similar to Tsarist Russia, pre-Soviet, and, and than even the Soviet. We always think like, oh, you know, Putin wants to bring the Soviet Union back, and I think there's elements that where that might be, but it's actually yeah you know, ol- having oligarchs, having um, targeting journalists, playing ethnicities, and that's a lot of Czarist stuff.
1: but Bruce, let me, let me go back on this. Uh, I think most people who study the Soviet Union and are familiar with with Russia um, always found that claim that he was trying to bring the Soviet Union back laughable- uh-huh. I mean, it comes out of a statement he made a while back that you know the the, the collapse of the things Soviet were better Union, during yeah well, the, yeah. the collapse yeah. of the Soviet Union was like one of the greatest historical tragedies like in Mo- something like this, right mm-hmm. and then people go he wants to bring it back. To say that and to and to refer to what's happening now as a cold war, uh, to me, it, it, you have to be so unaware of what made those things what they were. Um, like for example, it's let me just lay this out. This would be easy. It's incredibly Eurocentric. Um, because you say he wants to bring back the Soviet Union, why? But be- well, because he's uh he's going and taking Ukraine. He wants to take Ukraine, and Belarus. Uh, yeah. You think he wants? Uh, you think he wants Turkmenistan back? You think he's trying to take Tajikistan? Right is he is going and trying to reclaim right. uh, Azerbaijan? Um, the Soviet Union was so much larger than all than than, than the European republics, and they were certainly an important part of it. But you can't imagine that; uh, nobody even thinks that. Second of all, the Cold War was about ideology, and the and the ideology of the Cold War. Um, the way I just recently broke this down to my students is, if you want to look at World War II and kind of unite these diverse ideologies into camps. Um, seems like the U.S. and the Soviet Union being on the same side would be surprising because you go, well, they got, they've got they got opposing views of, of, you know, opposing stories. Yeah, and same thing with the Germans and the, and the Japanese. How do you unite them? And the way I put it is um, the, the, the Germans, the Italians, and the Japanese are united in that the future they are imagining and fighting for is a future based on bloodline. And the United States, the, uh, the British, the French, and the Soviets – all are fighting for a future based upon something else. They're not bound, it's not bound to 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 bloodline. Even the Soviets, their vision of the future is based in class. Great way
2: to look at it. I mean, during World War II, London had like 12 exiled governments. Yes. Yeah, it did. You know, in, in, in it. It was it was definitely um 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 international city. And of course, you know uh, what America is and what all the Americas are, nations of immigrants. And then uh, Russia, for all, for all the Soviet Union's fault, the one thing that they did well or badly, we could debate that, and I'll have podcasts coming out on that, is, like you say, so many of these ethnic groups. You could walk on Moscow in any day in, like, 1981 and speak 100 languages and see all kinds of different groups and everything from Inuits to, um, to uh, Tajiks and… Armenians, Uzbeks, Koreans… Who knows if everybody was really equal and stuff, at least on paper, there were some attempts to say, hey, you got to share the jobs and make sure everyone has housing and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. Arnie Westad, uh, his his book on the Cold War, um, uh, his first one, uh, the Global Cold War, I think is what it's called. Um, But Arnie Westad is a great historian and he lays out this book on the, the Global Cold War about, and he says, you know, what the US and the Soviet Union are selling at the end of the day is is they they both claim to be the, the the group that are fulfilling the like the enlightenment promise and fulfilling a world in which everyone is at their best everyone has their you know their rights fulfilled and that they're uh, you know that they're at the top there's this is completely absent right now there is oh, no promise it. that everyone will benefit from what's happening this is old school 19th century imperialism in which one group goes we want this we're going to take this Putin's not claiming that everyone in the world will be better off if he wins, uh, and that to me is a is a substantial difference. This is empire. This is this is I'll take this, you take that, and I think that that's to me great. is why I mean, the Cold a, War parallel is a problem. You're
2: giving you're giving people like a great um no, I think that's great. You're giving people like a great preview of of some things that I have for for the Soviet cast coming on that that a lot of Soviet citizens believed in the dream. It wasn't all like we thought it was all brainwashing, but. Um, oh, yeah, on going cutting back to Ukraine a bit, and, and and I want to go a little bit deep in the history if we feel like it. Roshewsky, the Ukrainian historian, and well, he he's just a guy, and he also was a politician around the uh, time of the beginning of the Soviet Union in Ukraine. But he was one that brought it back to, and he and he had a um, ten-volume history of Ukraine that came out in the eighteen, I believe, in the eighteen eighties, and finished it up in the nineteen. 19- 20s. And before he got, of course, like everyone in the Soviet Union that had an independent thought banned and uh, exiled at least to Moscow. But he takes it back to the Cossack era in the 1640s. And uh, Kamelnitsky, if I have that right, and his um, fights with the Poles and Having a nation of Ukraine that at that moment was neither Russia nor Poland nor the Ottomans, but worked with all three, but had the separate identity, freeing peasants and putting them on horseback and turning them into free, free Cossacks or free men. Of course, that brings up the history that at some point, uh, um, had to sign a treaty with Russia in order to make himself stronger in opposing Poland. And so you see two sides of that. For the Ukrainian historians it's like, yeah, that's a temporary. That's just like we had an alliance, US had an alliance with France. That's all that is. And then for the Russian historians including including that historian Putin, uh it's like that's when they signed with Russia and became part of Russia and uh from that point. So I don't know anything to say on that on the on the kind of the Cossack era.
1: So this is the issue. I mean to me, history in this region is a contested battleground. It depends on what you want to say and mm-hmm. what you want to remain silent about. The The question to me now comes comes like, okay, so Putin's claim that the, the borders of modern Ukraine were negotiated early on by the Soviets. That's true. I mean, as a modern state, that's, you know, right. that's unquestionable. Um, but when no, you this- say
2: the Soviets, guess what? Ukraine, when you say, like, people are like, oh, it's determined by the Soviets. Right. That doesn't mean the Russians. That means the Soviets, of which Ukraine right. is a part. Khrushchev and Brezhnev—they're from the Ukrainian
1: party. Yeah, so like they're they're from there, but that doesn't mean they represent the the, the overall yeah. sentiment. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the thing, and and with with a lot of this, um, whenever I, I did I wrote my uh, master's thesis, finished in 2005 at Appalachian State, I wrote it on the Russian Civil War in Siberia, and. It's you know it's funny in the South right? I'm like they're like what are you working on I'm like I'm writing about the Russian Civil War in Siberia and people are like I've always thought that if Lee had more soldiers I'm like it's there's more than one Civil War um <laughs> the South just always thought I was like I didn't know when went all the Siberia um so so you know this is one of the problems the Bolsheviks have is that I mean really this is a battle of, of stories the Bolsheviks come in with a whole new story about the way the world works and at a time when uh, World War One has brought the 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 Russian Empire to its knees, and so so so, so much to the point that you have uh, incredible losses, you have people going off to die, you have shortages of food, um, people are so desperate that they go out and risk their lives to overthrow the czar who has ultimate power. I mean, it's it's kind of an insane point, but what you end up with is a civil war that happens really from 1918 people say 21 that's kind of when the bigger parts are you still have like the rebels in central asia fighting to the 1920s you have i mean there's all these elements but to keep it neat 21 um and the fascinating thing is is that in siberia totally other side of things um you had these czechoslovak soldiers who had been fighting for independence they had they had left the austro hungarian empire a lot of them and surrendered and then were reformed into their own fighting brigades and then Trotsky was worried that they were going to, because once the, once the Bolsheviks take over and pull Russia out of the war, um, in the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in early 1918, these Czech Slovaks are pretty mad because a lot of people think that the Russians are now siding with the Germans. They think there's an alliance there because, of course, the Germans help Lenin get back. Um, all True. this is conspiratorial right. thinking. Um, but Trotsky has them, uh, he's like, how are we going to get these people out of here? Because we can't keep them here, right? Because they would, they're, they're well-trained soldiers. They could be a problem. He's like, also, we can't send them, like, like if we help them get back really quick, the Germans are going to be mad at us. There's a whole issue. How do we get them across Europe? So, they actually send them from from the eastern part of the empire. Sorry, from the western part of the Russian empire across the Trans-Siberian Railroad. And and they're going to send them out of Vladivostok across to the United States. They're then going to traverse the United States and go back to the other side of the – back to Europe to fight on the western front. Now, as they're going through in the civil war, there are all these factions that are fighting, right? There are the Siberian, I mean, those are the, the, the yeah, Siberian parties, there are the Bolsheviks, there are these the the white armies, there are all these groups. And I tried, At the point I couldn't read Russian, I couldn't get as very well. I couldn't get to Russia. So I was like, what sources can I find? And I found some good primary sources that have been translated and all this. But I remember thinking, man, this is supposed to be this huge revolution where everyone is involved in it, right? Everything's at stake. But by and large, the peasants in Siberia. You know what they want? They just want to be left alone. So like when the Bolsheviks first show up, they're like, oh yeah, cool. You're going to help us get rid of the Tsarist imperial imperial officers. Cool. They take a bunch of our stuff and a lot of us actually fled illegally. So we're running from them. We're with you. But they don't imagine a new government's going to come in place. They just kind of go, okay, cool. We're going to get rid of the Russian empire. They don't want anything new. And my one of my advisors who works on Mexican history, he made this point, and this is where I'm going to bring it back to Ukraine. He said, yeah, that's the thing. Peasants just want to be left alone. Peasants just want, they, they, they their relationship with the state is never good. They just want to be left alone to do what they want to do. Your stories you come in here with, okay, whatever. I'm a farmer. Like, I know the people in my community. That's all I'm worried about. And that's what happens in Ukraine too. Um, because there, there's not a huge nationalist movement outside of the cities. The Bolsheviks at first, a lot of, you know, a lot of Ukrainians are like, "Cool." You know, the same thing with the Germans. When the Germans actually take most of Ukraine in that in that Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, where it looks like the Germans are coming in there, the Germans kind of help prop up a Ukrainian state, and they're like, "Cool." But then, the, but then they realize that the Germans are just there to extract wealth from them, so they're like, "Yeah, no good." Then the Bolsheviks come in, and and a lot of the peasants are like, "Oh, good, the Bolsheviks are going to help us get rid of the Germans." And so they're like, "Cool" with them first until the Bolsheviks begin extracting wealth from them, and so at the end of the day, they just want to be largely left alone. And it, but it is this relationship from, with outsiders that, that helps form nationalism, helps form the notion of a nation. Because um, let me put this in an easy way you can understand, Bruce. I never thought of myself as much of a Southerner when I lived in the South. Mm-hmm. It was only when mm-hmm. I left the South that I realized that I was a Southerner because everyone reminded me of that. I, I think I understand. This makes sense. And, and when, when you were just at home, you're just like, well, I'm just trying to feed myself. It's when you have this direct engagement constantly with outside groups that you begin to think of yourself as different.
2: It does work the other way as well. I think yeah. I was 30 minutes into a visit in Texas when the before the y-word came out, you know. Oh yeah, we'll uh, the, Yankee, know. the Yankee, the <laughs> Yankee. Yeah, I mean we don't call each other that. It's a baseball <laughs> team up here. There's nobody uses that term.
1: Down here, people from California are Yankees. It's a it's a bizarre thing.
2: In England, we're all Yankees. Just to finish.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. But it comes back to this fact that 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 like you you create a sense of identity there that doesn't necessarily mean it's one thing.
2: In a Ukraine instance, who were the who were the foreign influences kind of creating a Ukraine sense of being or, or what have you?
1: Well, it's it's so the the sense of like separation, mm-hmm. the sense of us and them. I mean, this comes with like basically your relationship with any other group of outsiders being a negative, uh, a negative right? Gotcha. Because they own the land gotcha. they stri- I mean, basically, your your relationship with people who come from outside your community into your community is largely that they're there to take things from you by force. So that, that separates a distinct us and them. All over the Soviet Union, it's, it's different in each republic, but the issue becomes that the Bolsheviks, early on, their ideology is that nationalism is all just a farce of the bourgeoisie to divide and conquer, right? World War I is this manifestation of that to them. It's all... You know, in their mind, they're like it's a bunch of poor people mm-hmm. in trenches killing each other, being told that they're different. Mm-hmm. But in reality, once they see that class is really what what creates identity, then we'll just jump over that, right? So, that, I mean, that's the whole call during World War One. The Bolsheviks are saying, "Get over this, yo! They're Germans. You're, you know, you're Anglo Saxons. Who cares? You're all poor, and that's why it's, it becomes a compelling case for for a lot of Russians." So you have this, this reformation of identity. The problem is the Bolsheviks can't get people to believe that because nobody's really working class outside of the cities. So then how do you create the Marxist dialectic with peasants? And what they believe they can do is they can use like, they can entwine, they can, they basically are, they then make this weird turn where they institutionalize nations and bring in ethnographers. And these experts, who are again thinking in national categories, to to then create a national identity, because they reach the conclusion that you got to get that national identity first, so that you can understand the world in that terms. Like that, so basically, nationality substitutes itself for the real experience of class. So it's it's really enforced on through official Bolshevik policy language and like national heroes and all this are enforced on the idea. You'll jump over it.
2: You had to carry it around in your passport. What a,
1: well, and the, the idea is this will allow you to jump over that and get to the class part. And it, obviously we, we get stuck in that, in that first part, but that's why it is in a lot of, why it's fair to say that in a lot of ways, less to extent in Ukraine, where you do have national uh, figures, but my God, in central Asia, I mean, like basically the Bolsheviks trail lines around there and they're like, you're Kazakhs now you're Uzbeks now. Tajikistan is a little bit easier because Tajik speak a Persian-based language, right? So, like, they've got that. But then even the issue of, like, um, control over uh, uh, Samarkand, right? It's ethnically over that. But then they then use this and be like, here's what you are. Here's what you are. And they try to create these nationalities. And so, it's true that there are the creation of these nationalities through Soviet official policy. Now, the question to me is, and the problem I have with Putin is is, is then, yeah, okay, so that, that might be a correct story. Certainly, he's embellishing in some cases. But are we then bound to, like, if we say that that was that was a state-sponsored creation of identity, does that mean that we now get to follow yours?
2: Right. You know, it's a legitimate question. Even if you were right that this was part of the Soviet Union, it was connected to Russia. For 30 years, it hasn't been. So what does that mean? Doesn't that mean anything? We're in a modern world. You don't, you don't attack countries. Right. I mean, there's just a, uh, whatever happened to that new world order. Right. I guess the message didn't get around.
1: And we helped create some of this, you know, with like, with the national self-determination in Europe, the thing that if you get this, these categories again, as they exist, you know, as let's say there's, there's like a way that these national categories are allowed to exist legitimately. Um, and, and that we kind of are fine with them. Like this is where this thing with, with well, not we, but like the world kind of accepts this principle. Right. Um, this was how this conflict went down early on, and I said earlier talking about uh, Ru- Putin's long history of, of exploiting ethnic difference in ways that were advantageous. They all played by a general understanding, like the other side's understanding of who they were. So, like he didn't go to Abkhazia and be like, "You're Russians now." He used the conflict with the Georgian Republic, um, as a as a and with a, uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, to justify an intervention. He then went into those areas, cleared out Georgian forces, and then began slowly advancing towards Tbilisi. Uh, There were some airstrikes around Tbilisi, but basically went in. Now he's legitimized. We're helping out the people. This is the story, right? We're helping out these nations. And then then allowed, very shortly after, without going and bombing Tbilisi or heading straight for Tbilisi, allowed the French to negotiate a treaty that Putin got what he wanted. It was a very, and and the world goes, and then France negotiates. They go, okay, okay, we're going to work this out. We don't think it's right, but there's some in the modern consciousness some legitimacy to being like that's an ethnic group. Okay, whatever. It's it's in other words, it's rules that people understand whether or not they accept the 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 action.
2: Oh my god. I mean it has everything to do with World War II and Czechoslovakia and the and the Munich Agreement, everything to do with that. Same same arguments, not a real country, just created at the peace table two countries melded together. I mean, yeah, you certainly, um, has everything to do with the war in Yugoslavia. I mean, you have to be careful about our acceptance of these terms.
1: Yeah, this is, I think this is why, I'm certainly those of us who study Russia and why Western Europe, a place where, in Central Europe, a place where people understand national categories a little better, like I said, going back to this, we as Americans have a civic nationality. Our borders are our community. That, that is something that, that – mm-hmm. so when we see, we think of borders as essential to creating our community, birthright citizenship, right? If you're born inside of our borders, you are an American citizen. That's how we market it. It's not based on race. It's not based on any of these things. Um, although I would say we have tried. There, there have been people who have tried. You go back to uh, Dred Scott, that decision, and you look at what the Confederacy was. I would, I would make a strong argument the Confederacy was yeah. an attempt to create an ethnic nation within the United States. We rejected that. This modern day, we don't think like that. Right. So when Putin goes into, with the 2014, right, the seizing Crimea and then, you know, supporting these breakaway republics of Luhansk and Donetsk, like, it's, that's not cool. But to a lot of the world, like, it certainly hurt Putin's reputation. But if you want to ask why he didn't totally lose out on all foreign involvement or, you know relations with like germany and and france it's because he was playing by rules that had been kind of established whether you accept them or not people knew he was saying the people who live in those areas are ethnic russians to the united states we say that's Mm -hmm. a state border but the border of the nation does not follow state borders so he's saying the community that i am asserting myself to is an ethnic nation not the state that's why I think every one of us and people in Western Germany, remember we were freaking out. The United States was freaking out about this, about what was happening with Putin surrounding the country. Western Europe was not as much. I mean, they were not cool with it, but they were not as much because because they thought what, what I think most scholars on the, of the area thought. He was going to use this threat to annex or to push further into these ethnic Russian majority areas that would have followed script because he's making the claim of the nation. When he went for Kyiv, that was where everything fell apart because that didn't follow a script anybody quite understood. Why do you go for the capital? And You could have very easily done in Ukraine what you did in Georgia. You move in, you fully occupy the areas you want to break away, and then you slowly move towards Kiev, and at that point, you've got an out. At that point, you go, somebody negotiated into this, and you have not an, not an embrace of it, but probably a willingness in Western Europe to see far more okay, we'll, we'll end this, that'll end the war, you'll get this.
3: Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. every other week for a new episode where
0: I'd like to tell you a story. If you care about what happens to your money, you need to listen to SoFi Daily. Unlike other podcasts talking about finances, markets, and businesses, some spending more than 60 minutes to cover everything, SoFi cuts to the heart of the financial world in five minutes or less. In each episode, you'll hear about every financial piece of news you need to know from previous market updates and future trends to things happening that day. It's a great way to track what's going on and how it could affect your money. So stay on top of your finances. Listen to SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I mean, you got a lot of theories. There's the old overused three-dimensional chess. He had already, in his mind worked out that play where he he could have done threatened kiev to get the Donbass, and knowing that he could do that goes for the extra because he already played that out in his head and knew what europe and nato would do already which uh and so he went for the extra um the other theory you're hearing a lot of is like that there's some putin's getting older the regime's getting older there's maybe not a lot of thinking going on and then the third is that maybe I'm not going to use any of the, like, President Trump's language about this is a, well, what a move or whatever, but maybe that it's right in line with a larger plan that actually wants wants to go for a new world order and really upset things.
1: Right. And again, I could be wrong about this, but I think that the old playbook, I mean, if he pulls the playbook out of Georgia where he, I mean, you're going to have far friendlier interactions with people in, I mean, not totally friendly, but you're you're local, you're, you're the resources it takes to hold down Donetsk and Luhansk after moving in where you've already got a strong presence. That's pretty easy. It's an easy win. Um, You then move towards Kiev again, saying, we'll negotiate an end to this, right? And then you kind of say, you put pressure from Western Europe on this to be like, hey, you got to end this war, right? Now you've got, they might not like it, but you you say, if you don't accept this, it could lead to something worse. You play people off each other. But did you hear about this article that came out for a minute, like the Saturday after uh, the invasion? That was launched by like TASS and, and, and RIA, like all of these. Uh, no, I don't think so. This to me is key. It came out and it basically auto launched, I think like 3 p.m. Moscow time on the big, big state. And it was quickly taken down. But it was somebody, somebody saved it, like the Wayback machine, caught it. Like one of the, I think one of the organizations kept it up a little bit longer. But the article was called Nostoplenia Russia vo novo vomira And what it means is the Russian offensive in the new world and it was written from the perspective and this is why it was like it, it's almost like this whole thing was on a launch remember putin gave that talk the, n- the day before about it and then he announced the invasion but everybody was like he's wearing the same clothes he pre-recorded this when they announced the invasion it's like he pre almost like a social media campaign like where he like had everything set up to go in order this is
2: our first large social media war
1: yeah well if that's the case as i think i think it is putin had expected that ukraine would fall very quickly because this article that came out and was quickly revoked is written from the perspective of a very successful uh, campaign to take Ukraine. And in it, the, the author is almost certainly official state propaganda. If it's like auto launching on all these things, the, the, the author is like, basically let, let us explain to you what we did here. Um, we freed Ukraine from its fascist uh, overlords and we have unleashed a new era. And they say in this, you know, an era in which Russia, Belarusia and Malorussia have been restored and shall provide a new balance of power in the world. It's an it's a statement that is based in and this this new nationalist story that that is really kind of you call it neo-zarism and it's written from that perspective and it says, you know, we have created this world. This is a whole new ideology. And this helps explain why he went for Kiev. Putin might actually be, you know, I don't think Putin, I think it's laughable to say he's uh, trying to establish a new Soviet Union for all the reasons that I've explained before. But what he might be trying to do is establish a new Tsarist empire.
2: I think you couldn't be wrong. And we're not going to get the uh, universal work and universal housing and and benefits of a a communal Soviet Union. He doesn't care about that. In fact, he's quite the opposite. He wouldn't be in power if that existed in in the same way. But the borders would be nice, particularly the European borders. He wouldn't mind if he could get it. I think you get Ukraine, Poland's threatened, Romania's threatened. Moldavia seems like a goner if if he was able to move faster. Were you, like everyone, kind of surprised by the resistance, how strong it's been?
1: Um, let me say this. I'm not surprised by how strong the resistance has been. I'm surprised by how effective it's been. Okay. Because this is the thing. Again, it's like you're saying they're not trying to recruit people, right? I mean, ethnic nationalism does not proselytize because it's not expansive. Right, mm-hmm. I mean, this is the thing: communism, capitalism, all these concepts—they're they're, they're, they're proselytizing ideologies. Not ethnic nationalism—you you're in it or you're not—and this is the problem. The conflict that had been between between Ukraine and Russia, the core of the of the conflict at this point had been about nationalism, about you're a Ukrainian, you're a Russian, and that was something where you could draw lines. And frankly, it was concerning to me because this to see what was happening in Ukraine in the years before this. It's not, I mean, and this is where you say it's like every, you know, now it's like you can't say anything bad about Ukraine right now. It's like, well, let me, let me just put this in context. The Ukrainian government had been passing language policy that, that relegated Russian speakers to second class citizenship because Ukraine's trying to figure out an ideology that unites folks. And it was leaning, it was It was resting on Ethnic nationalism, my personal opinion is that ethnic nationalism needs to be gone. Um, Anything that binds you to something you had nothing to do with and limits your belonging, limits your upbringing, anything that relegates others to second-class citizenship to me, is and is is fundamentally the antithesis of the Enlightenment and the principles that I think are most uh, empowering to people. But
2: the West is, yeah, I, I see your point. I see your point, Ben. The West is in it for a little bit here, but we should we should think about what we're doing and keep it temporary to the specific conflict. Yeah, we're rooting for Ukraine and we're 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 thankful that they're united and everything. But there is yes. behind that something to think about. I mean, other other countries have certainly done. I mean, Quebec has done language laws france has done language laws i mean uh, there's a lot of people that want to fight for their for their culture and things like that
1: Culture's different though Culture's different culture is something you can choose to embrace or choose not to now it's hard right if you it, a language yeah. law is one thing but this when when the language law is rooted in, in a history or a tradition mm-hmm. right you got this is our tradition here that's not immutable that's not you can't belong here i mean it's like the french right they're like speak french here okay yeah, yeah. That's a, still a civic nationalism. the Same way we're like speak English here. It has everything to do with like the idea that that's what we do here. It's not the idea that like immutably in our bloodline is this thing, and if you don't speak it, you are our enemy. But I will say this. So back to the question of of the resistance. I knew the Ukrainians were going to fight because what the Russians were trying to do and it was was to was to take land from them. Mm-hmm. Once I realized what it is, and this is. This is no longer a battle between Russian ethnicity and Ukrainian ethnicity. This is a battle between this ideology that Putin is trying to force on the Ukrainians that they're actually part of his own group. And this is and this why I'm saying it's off the charts. And in this, remember, you have Russia, or is Great Russia, Belorussia, White Russia, Belarus, and Malarussia, Little Russia. It's a It, it is a diminutive status within this but never when Putin's trying to force on them at this point, they don't have to imagine themselves as Ukrainians to fight, to fight the, the, this new ideology because it's simply of fighting against the imposition of, of a community that's being, that's being hoisted upon them and forced on them by Putin. And this is where the brilliance comes in, Bruce. And I'll, I'll, this is this last thing I'll say here. Sure. The brilliance comes in that there is now this moment where if you, who's the national hero? Who will always, I think for as long as we exist, be a national hero to Ukraine? It's, it's Volodymyr Zelensky. And this is where I think that Putin, whatever happens with us, it's a tragedy. But when one of your national heroes is a Jewish native Russian speaker, your national story is going to be far more expansive because he is not of that bloodline. He is not a native speaker of that language. It is going to open up, I think, a new a new notion of what it means to be Ukrainian. That's going to be far more beautiful.
2: I couldn't agree more. And I think if there are thoughts that you're probably un- uniquely qualified to answer as a comedian historian.
1: <laughs> yeah, Zelensky's
2: representing us pretty well too. Well. You know, I'm not as shocked by that as some, right? Comedians are thinkers, right? I mean, they're yeah. intense thinkers. Everyone, they don't spend all their time joking around, right?
1: Well, they spend some of their time being horrible to each other. That's another side of it. But but no, but
2: it takes a an appreciation of life to to be able to, you know, I, I that's why I'm not as shocked, you know. And performance doesn't hurt either.
1: <laughs> yeah, no. And that and that's the thing with him. Um and it's weird uh like to think about the idea of like, you know, well, Trump was one of these people. No, Trump wasn't uh one of these people. Um, I mean,
2: he he uh, could have been. He gave that up. I think he had sure. Did he have some performance skills and it it's being president and being performer? I mean, uh Ronald Reagan, you know. I mean, that's that's uh I think it's it's everything you're saying goes to um goes to something very important for what's happened on the military. Neither of us are military historians. I get that, but we we dabble a bit. I mean, I look at it and I say, when you go motivated troops and particularly to the point of like you're saying, stealing your land, taking everything from you, no give, it's not going to be just a friendly little change of administration. You will take out 10 to 20 people in your room before they get you that plus American help drones and things like this, yes. um, that buffoon you know uh, russian soldiers doing the wrong thing muddy roads all of this stuff together inadequate supplies and fuel problems fighting in your own land where you know the territory all of that stuff um you look at it and russians i just now i look at it and say they simply do not have enough soldiers to conquer this country
1: well they could get them i mean that's that's an issue but they were ill prepared do you want to say the I think drooping Trump in with Zelensky and Reagan is a problem. And this this is actually really well. I've been convinced of this since a conversation a few years ago on the road to now with a historian named Catherine Kramer Brunel. She wrote a book about called Showbiz Politics. And she said that Trump is not comparing Trump to Reagan doesn't work in this way because Reagan, like Zelensky, are actors. Actors have to work with the community. Everything's coordinated. You have to know how to play your role. You have to know how to play off other people. You were constantly working on a team. Mm-hmm. Trump was a reality star. And the values that make a good reality star is basically the, the the potential to create chaos and create problems at every turn because, you know, entertainment is conflict resolution, right? A lot of it. And so, that's the difference. Zelinsky knows how to, man, I was telling Kelly, Zelensky knows how to stage a good talk. Mm-hmm. He's, his team has... A, has a, And that, to me, is what's great about it. Like, these images where he's in front of buildings where, you know, they say, well, Zelensky's freed, and then him and his friends are standing around outside drinking coffee in Kiev, and they're like, no, we haven't. I mean, it's so it's so punchy, and they've won the propaganda war, and I don't know, you know, the, the qualities he's learned as a performer are certainly instrumental to that, even though they alone wouldn't save him, right? But his fortitude and everything. So I got I gotta give credit to that. As for the military aspect yeah i don't know i, I it's it, it is remarkable to me because i kind of expected that the russians would just go in and, and take over but um who was it did you see like the defense minister of ukraine like wrote a thanks to uh like tagged a bunch of oligarchs <laughs> on twitter and like was thank them for squandering all of russia's military budget
2: well i again i go back to i know they can maybe get soldiers or what have you i do think they're going to run out there's no limit to what you can militarize of your society. If they want to go full North Korea, maybe that's the angle here. But I do think you can, hey, go back to World War One. The Germans, the, the, as far as I know, no French troops or American troops ever got into Germany that or that much. And yet Berlin surrenders
1: they starved him out
2: right you can waste your stuff you can starve out even in offense you know you can get into uh rumble in the jungle type stuff where you're wearing yourself out spending all the money i mean this could actually it's never going to happen but at some point you could okay we'll actually surrender it's not going to happen that way because putin's not going to mm. work that way but it could happen in a form of some kind of negotiations with we hope for the best
1: I do too, but I don't know. I mean, I think in the same way the Ukrainians will never stop fighting, and I've said this from the beginning; they'll never stop yeah. fighting. But yes, yeah. I, I don't know that Putin will either, because they're in it. If he really believes this story, as I'm more and more convinced he does, that this is somehow uh, an inherent, uh, timeless, primordial bloodline relationship, and that is the proper way the world should be. Even if he has to back off now, you know, if <laughs> if you're playing Empire and you go, "I want a colony." you go, oh, we lost we get another colony maybe but if you really have a true ideology that that is yours and that the world has robbed you of it and right. this is the story you know that, that the west has robbed russia and of, of its natural balance which is why i think that he thought that ukraine was going to fall so fast i think putin maybe really did believe that the vast majority of ukrainians understood his vision of the world and believed in it and that if he got rid of the the fascist and i should also add drug addicts he's been calling a lot of them the, the word narcoman which means russian i mean it means drug addict in russian has been popping up in his speeches more and more um if you believe that then you go you know you get rid of the top and then everybody's on your side
2: this is another lesson among many things in the dangers of following propaganda and we do it too in america not to this extreme i don't think anyone's invading but stop thinking about your political opponents as just you know getting high on your own supply, to use the drug term, and like thinking you're believing your own, you believed your own propaganda. Better to be a critical thinker. But of course, we're on podcasts. So, you know, we're biased, right? But it's better to be a critical thinker because it's jumped off the page now with this invasion. Propaganda became utterly real.
1: So let your story follow the evidence, not the other way around. As As I've said before, Bruce, I say this in my classes all the time. If you think you have the answer to a question before you've actually looked at the question you don't have a science you have a religion and if your religion is Christian Christianity Islam Hindu any, any of that I'm with you I support you but if your religion is Republican or Democrat capitalist or communist neo-zarist right no no I'm not with you on that these things are all subject to, to you know the the, the the stuff of life is subject to uh, criticism to refinement we should all be pursuing the best conclusions. And, uh, and yeah, I love that, I love that parallel. Cause you're right. It's just like, I've told a story. Here's the story is the truth. And anything doesn't fit it is, is either a lie or illegitimate.
2: It, it's, uh, and then you go back to, Hey, it was a country for 30 years. So whatever it is, you know, this is one where I'll actually bat the history down a bit and say, whatever the history is at present, it was a country and you entered it, you know, without an yeah. invitation.
1: Yeah. And so the history weighs heavily on this stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. my whole thing has been, I, I get it. Like, if if your name to another country that has a history of, uh, you know, subjugating your people, if your name can be interpreted, whether or not it's the actual origins of it, Mm. if it can be interpreted as being on the cusp of something, and our most immediate experience of being on the cusp of something is being on the edges of the Soviet Union, and now being tried to be forced back into uh, the edges of the Russian Empire by Putin, uh, okay, don't call it the Ukraine, right? Because... Because whatever the histor- I mean there's, there's historical legacy matters. But at the same time, um, for me, is what do you want me to call you? if, if, if that if evoking that historical legacy, which has re- real pro- which, you know, has re- created real problems for you right now, um, if that is an issue that your group of people feel uh, is, is uh, not respectful, OK, I want to follow you on it. Yeah, I mean, I,
2: I think I'll do we both do history podcasts. I'll be the first to say can't be absolutist about it. Then you're yeah. just like a guy wearing a wig to work in a 21st century office. You know, it doesn't. Well, unless it's a modern wig, it doesn't work. You know, you, you, this isn't what history. It, it's not absolutism. It's just one tool to use that we try to use well to get some of the some of the interpretation. Well, anyway, Ben Sawyer, great having you on Road to Now podcast. Where can people find it?
1: Wherever you're listening (laughs) to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics right now, you could go there, or I wouldn't blame you if you did this. Just go listen to more episodes of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. As someone who listens (laughs) to this podcast, it's kind of cool to be on it, but also I got to say kind of disappointing because I'm not going to be able to listen to this episode because it'll just be me talking and I hear enough of that already. (laughs)
2: oh you don't listen to yourself oh
1: i listen to myself all the time oh my god having to edit lectures during the quarantine having to listen to my own stand-up comedy back having to like i mean just edit my own episodes of my podcast (laughs) Uh,
2: i wait a week the edit doesn't count the edit the edit itself isn't the same as the three weeks later i listen three weeks later uh well ben great having you on you know we'll get back in touch with you more when i get into the soviet because now i can tell definitely have a lot to say I want to thank Ben Sawyer for coming on the program today. A couple of things. Check out his article in the Washington Post. Also, the Road to Now podcast. Find it on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get podcasts. If you're listening to this program, you really should be listening to them. They cover a lot of topics, and they talk to a lot of interesting folks. If you like music, um, well, who doesn't like music? If you like a particular... If you like the Avid brothers, you know, Bob Crawford, that he does the podcast with, is a member of that band. And sometimes members of the Avid brothers come on and they're highly um, intelligent people that really, you know, speak to a lot of topics. It, it's a good program. Okay. Our website is your politics.com. There are many archived episodes at that website. If you want to support the program, we have a Patreon, patreon patreon.com slash mhcbuyp. And thanks for listening.